during World War I, about 25% of our nation's youth could not serve because of physical defects. In World War II, that trend had brought it up to about 50%. Recently, that trend line shows that about only about 23% of our nation's youth are eligible to serve in the military. So this declining pool of recruits because of physical inability to serve, levels of obesity, lack of fitness is causing, uh, would, would cause in the future a national security concern just from the ability to serve. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. My guest on this episode is retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. General Hurtling is a 1975 graduate of West Point. He retired in 2012 after serving as Commanding General of U.S. Army Europe and was subsequently appointed by President Obama to serve on the President's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. He recently visited West Point to speak to cadets about the link between physical fitness and American military readiness and national security. I sat down with General Hurtling to continue the conversation on that topic. A couple quick notes. If you're not following MWI on Twitter and Facebook, check us out at War Institute. It's a great way to make sure you see all of the articles and other content we're putting out. Also, as always, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect the position of any agency of the U.S. government. General Hurtling, welcome to the MWI podcast. It's great to be here with you. So I, I want to start on something that you've spoken often about and publicly about, and that's physical fitness and specifically its relationship with national security, particularly military readiness. Can you talk a little bit about how you first took an interest in this topic? Yeah, well, in, in, the, uh, in the early 1980s, uh, I had the opportunity to be offered uh, a graduate school uh, through the military academy to come back here and teach in the Department of Physical Education. And uh, it opened up an entirely new world to me as I, I got my graduate degree in, in physiology and kinesiology at Indiana University. Uh, what I found was uh, I, had, I had not been that involved in science as you go through your normal curricula back in the day at West Point. It was mostly about uh, you know, engineering and math, uh, but it didn't get into as much the physical sciences. And I was just fascinated at, at IU when the first day of an ana a summer anatomy lab, I was given my very own cadaver to work on. And seeing uh, the health of this individual and uh, having a record of the medical history of the cadaver I was working on and knowing a little bit about his lifestyle, uh, as we opened up the body and went inside, I could see the results of what we were studying in the classroom having to do with physiology, uh, kinesiology, exercise science. So the combination of that, that physical touch of a human body with what we were learning in the classroom was really... Uh, eye-opening for me. The, the cadaver I had uh, had a history of, of heart disease, uh, uh, obesity, um, and it was because primarily he was a three-pack-a-day smoker, hadn't exercised, uh, and had all sorts of physical maladies that contributed to his ill health. And as I opened up the inside and saw the effects on, that, uh, on his body, uh, I realized the, the importance of physical activity. You combine that with what we do at the academy and the study of history and men and women in combat and what the requirements are, 
and knowing the physiology of fear is also uh, somewhat equal to the physiology of fatigue in terms of hormonal release, what it does to the muscles, what it does to the mind, and how fitness is a contributor to battlefield victory, a major contributor to battlefield victory and a healthy lifestyle. All of those things really combined uh, to, to give me a, a second love outside the operational training arm of the Army. So I, I kind of had an interest in this area through the rest of my career. Um, in different jobs, I'd always try and ensure the commands I had were healthy and focused on physical readiness and physical fitness. But it was really when I came back to teach at West Point that I got interested in all that. So you taught at West Point in the Department of Physical Education, uh, and that so that uh, I guess it continued your your interest in fitness, but how it how it really links to, to the operational yeah, army. Yeah, well, and the other thing I'd say about teaching in the the department, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people have this concept that a an instructor in DPE is all about you know bouncing basketballs and and running around the gym. But because I was asked to teach in the aquatics uh, directorate of DPE, where I was teaching what is affectionately known as rock squad swimming, uh, that's teaching swimming to individuals who, who don't know how to swim or, more importantly, have a fear of the water, uh, I also saw the effects of, of fear and how training can help overcome that and how mastery of physical skills can also give you courage. Uh, in the case of teaching in DPE, it was all about how that courage contributed and courage and techniques and skills contributed in a pool. But in the other parts of my career, I realized how physical confidence and courage and the understanding of techniques contributed to uh, success on the battlefield. So then if we fast forward to the 2000s, you were asked by uh, General Dempsey, Martin Dempsey, uh, at the time to lead an effort to sort of fix basic training, yeah. if I understand it, yeah. um, which is really the sort of first formative experience soldiers have with the Army. Can you explain a little bit about that mission and what, what the problems were that needed to be fixed? Yeah, well, General, General Dempsey is his want to do. And by the way, uh, as I mentioned in the, in the presentation today, General Dempsey and I are, are good friends, and that friendship was formed here at West Point. We were next-door neighbors. Uh, we lived in the same triplex together. Our kids grew up together. And uh, as young captains together, he, he in the English department, me in the PE department, we formed a, a really good friendship talking about not only our, our different requirements for teaching here at the academy, but also our, our love of the Army and love of service to the nation. And we continued with that uh, relationship, not only just the two of us, but also our entire family. Our wives are best friends, our kids are, are very close. And that, that's another aspect of the Army that is so critically important. It's just the friends that you make and the, and the, and the contributions that you share with others. Um, fast forwarding almost 20 years uh, or more, I guess, 25 years after West Point, General Dempsey took over TRADOC and asked me, uh, after I had served with him in, in Iraq when he was the commanding general of the 1st Armored Division, I was one of his ADCs, uh, to serve with him again at TRADOC and be the, the first commanding general of initial military training, IMT. And what we were trying to do was an analysis and a revamping of basic training for soldiers and for officers as well as warrant officers. 
And at the time, we realized we had some, some real challenges with our incoming group of soldiers, that they were not as fit. Uh, they had been trained differently in the schools and trained and educated differently in the schools. There was not as much of an emphasis on, on physical readiness or um, values. And so after our, uh, an assessment, we realized we had to change some things in basic training. Uh, centered around primarily the skills we were teaching soldiers for a different type of combat, but also uh, their inculcation of values to address the demands and complexities of the modern battlefield where, where it's a war among the people. But then in doing those assessments, we also found that the generation of youth that we were training in basic training, the 18 to 26-year-olds, uh, we're in really poor condition. And as you, as you watch this on a daily basis, it's not as noticeable. But when you compare the states of different armies, uh, the U.S. Army, at different periods of time, you can see that a health crisis that has overtaken the United States was contributing to many factors of injury rates, attrition rates, ability to do the kinds of things that soldiers need to do on the battlefield that we teach them in basic training. We were having challenges in each one of those areas uh, in basic training in 2009. So as a result of, of some of the things we found in some, some research and some analysis and some studies, uh, we started making major changes, not only in the skills we were teaching, rifle marksmanship, uh, first aid, actions on contact on the battlefield, the kinds of skills that soldiers need when they are in shape. But we also had to change the way we got them in shape because of the, the de decline in the fitness of our youth and the lack of physical training in our schools that had occurred over the previous decade. So both in that position and then later when, when, when former President Obama appointed you to a presidential commission on, mm -hmm. on, on physical fitness, um, when you started to try to kind of frame the problem and conceptualize it, what were some of the data points that really stuck out to you that said, yes, we have a problem? And then uh, what were some of the, the drivers that, that, that you attributed that problem to? Yeah, well, as we conducted surveys of new soldiers, here are some of the things we found. Uh, of significant importance was the fact that the diet of our nation's youth had changed radically from the early 1990s until the, the early 2000s. And what I mean primarily by that is because of societal issues, increase in divorce rates, changes in eating habits, um, changing in the way commercial organizations like fast food places were serving food and the amount and type of food they were serving and the way it was prepared was all contributing uh, to uh, an increase in obesity levels. That was number one. Number two, because of a variety of, of changes in grade school and high school curricula, we were seeing that a reduction in, in PE classes, physical education classes, and the requirement to attend those classes in most of the states in the union. In combination with that, you also had the technology revolution, where most young people were spending a significant amount of time in front of computers or television sets, uh, 
doing things that in the past uh, were not available and in fact had taken the place of youth activity, uh, playing outside, running, jumping, skipping, riding bicycles, playing pickup games of baseball in the neighborhood, basketball, or those kind of things. So we were, repla- we were seeing the replacement of activity with sedentary uh, lifestyle choices like watching TV, being in front of a computer, sitting down and playing video games. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, if you're, you're talking about a perfect storm of a lot of things coming together, um, we also saw a, an increase in parents focused on one sport athletic skills and the desire to make kids uh, single sport athletes for in, in order to get college scholarships or prove to parents that the kids were much better. So you would see uh, some children focus on one sport only. Uh, and not that that in and of itself is bad, but the lack of ability to develop motor skills and fitness in uh, over a, ry- a wide range of things was changing. So you'd have kids who were three season athletes in basketball and never play anything else. In and of itself, not a bad thing, but they were also turning uh, grade school and high school sports into a somewhat a professional aspect of play. Uh, you also had the contributions of, of what has become known as helicopter parents or millennial parents, the ones who you know, believe every child should win and get a juice, juice box and a uniform whenever they play. So the, all of that was contributing to a decline uh, in the majority of our nation's youth in their fitness levels. Um, we had to counter that in 10 weeks of basic training. And what we couldn't do was continue to do the kinds of physical training we had always done because we were causing significant damage uh, introducing these kind of fitness activities to kids for the first time. More muscle pulls, more uh, bone damage, uh, increased numbers of uh, uh, desire to to leave basic training because it was too hard, uh, all contributed to saying, hey, we've got to do things differently. So we changed the the fitness approach, the physical training approach in basic training. Um, We introduced uh, the PRT program. we introduced more sleep in basic training to make sure that the body could recover, all of which were based on physiological sound principles. Uh, we changed the way we fed in basic training, which was a significant uh, change to what had been done in the past. We introduced the three programs of the, the, the uh, soldiers and athlete program, the fueling the soldier program, and then we tried to introduce a new PT test that was more geared toward combat activity versus just the sit-ups, push-ups, and two-mile run. I think that the that physical fitness trends in the, in the United States leaves a diminished pool of, of physically qualified yeah. uh, recruits from the military. I think that that's a pretty intuitive case to be made. You've also, um, I think, explained why this is a fairly modern problem. I'm just curious how... Uh, how the scale of the problem compares to, say, a historical national, cases. How it becomes a national security concern. Sure. Yeah. Well, in, in two ways, and I, I kind of coined that in a TED Talk a few years ago, that 
the, the obesity rate of our nation's youth was becoming a national con security concern for two reasons. Number one, it was decreasing the, the size of the recruitment pool for the military of the United States. Uh, when we couldn't have people join our army who were not fit enough to serve, uh, it's a significant challenge. And as I stated in the, in the presentation during World War I, about 25% of our nation's youth could not serve because of physical defects. In World War II, that trend had brought it up to about 50%. Uh, so we had to recruit a million, uh, we had to recruit two million soldiers in order to get one million serving on the battlefield. Um, recently, that trend line shows that about, only about 23% of our nation's youth are eligible to serve in the military. And we're competing with college and, and work for, for those 23%. So this declining pool of recruits because of physical inability to serve, levels of obesity, lack of fitness is causing, uh, uh, would, would cause in the future a national security concern just from the ability to serve. But the other factor is the amount of money our nation is paying for health concerns. So as we see an increase in comorbidity rates uh, for people going into hospitals, where in the past a, a person might go into a hospital for one disease or one malady, they're now going in for three or four uh, because of the, the effects of obesity, bad food, lack of exercise. We're now seeing that affect how much money we're spending as a nation, and it's going to cause us to go broke because we are shifting more and more funds toward healthcare uh, and shifting it away from things like national defense, schooling, uh, and other social programs. So I wanna kind of um, play devil's ad advocate for a moment here. With the expansion of uh, war into new domains beyond you know, the traditional air, land, and sea, um, I'm thinking specifically cyber, uh, there's an ongoing and robust discussion about how much physical standards still matter when uh, when cognitive and technical abilities and skills uh, are increasingly important in some of those domains? How does that play into this? Well, when you take a look, as an example, at our at our uh, leadership manual, uh, ADRP six twenty two, what you will see is leadership is defined by an individual's character, uh, presence, and intellect. So those are the three attributes of leadership, character, presence, and intellect. Uh, if you're only looking for the intellect piece, the ability to solve cyber problems um, without the character or uh, the presence piece, then I would say you've probably got a pretty good argument. But when you talk about building teams, and the military is a team of teams, uh, you have to look at all attributes and competencies of leadership. If you only focus on intellect, the ability of the individual to do the job, you don't you take away from the ability to build a team. That's number one. Uh, and I would suggest that as part of building the team, you need a physical component of both presence and character that would contribute to uh, the ability of the individual to feel self-confident. Uh, be measured in their responses, uh, eliminate some of the, the ups and downs of testosterone releases and, and the kind of hormones that affect behavior, uh, and all of those things physical activity contributes to. That's number one. Number two, 
from the standpoint of leadership, there have been several studies that have shown that a physical presence and the ability to be both energized and uh, uh, willingness, and not willingness, but a, uh, uh, what's the term I want to use? The ability to fight off fatigue is critically important to leading organizations. So energy and, uh, and passion, primarily, those things are, are areas where physical activity contribute. The final piece I'd say, number three, is uh, there have been a lot of research study that shows the thinking person, the intellect, has a contribution when their brain patterns are such that they are informed but also energized. So if you, if you put, there have been studies that show if you put someone in front of a computer without the potential for having that same person be energized physically, that they will eventually use, lose their cognitive capability. When you, the combination of leadership, team building, and cognitive ability, I would say, still stresses the requirement to have someone who is physically capable of doing a job, not just intellectually capable. That, that's a hard argument to make in a podcast, but when you look at research that's been conducted, and the ability of those who have physical activity as part of their schedule, it contributes to not only their leadership role, but their thinking role. So if we've framed the problem, where do you start to think about solutions? And are the solutions um, ones that can take place in the Army or that need to be implemented more broadly across society? Yeah, that's, that's the most important question. And I think we as an Army can't fix this problem. We can assist it in being solved, but we can't fix it singly. Uh, this has got to be something that is not only done in the schools, but in the families. Uh, there has to be a holistic approach to how do we ensure our nation's health? How do we improve the outlook of our young people? How do we improve leadership? And in my view, based on what I've seen in the research, physical activity is the key area that contributes to leadership and intellectual capacity. But it doesn't just start in the Army. Uh, I have seen elementary school and high school kids who aren't given the opportunity to exercise or have activity during their day uh, not learn as much as those who are given that break, that brain break as they call it, uh, and the ability to recharge uh, their neural patterns. Um, but that's something that can't just happen at age 18 when a kid decides to go in the Army and puts on the uniform. If we really want to establish um, physical fitness or physical readiness as a requirement, a holistic health approach to counter the health crisis we're about to have, it's got to start in the schools, but it also has to be modeled in the families as well. General McMaster has, has written about, and, and others have spoken about too, but, but he, he in particular has written about the enduring continuities of war mm -hmm. um, alongside kind of the changing character yeah. of, of warfare. I think it's undeniable that the combat experience for a soldier today is different than it was, say, in the Persian Gulf War, and certainly different than it was in World War II or World War I. As modern war continues to evolve and, and stresses participants in it differently, does that change the type of physical fitness that's required? Yeah, I think it does to a degree. I think it's got to be harder, and here's why I say that. Uh, in my studies in grad school, what 
I saw was the reaction to stress is about the same from a hormonal and physiological standpoint as the reaction to fear. Um, and when I say stress, I'm talking about physical or emotional stress. A world-class a world-class athlete will fatigue in such a way over a series of events that the breakdown of the body or the inability to compete really mirrors the same kind of breakdown you see in a body as a result of fear. Uh, when you're talking about continual requirement for resilience in combat, for the ability uh, for a soldier to spend a long time deployed under stress, continuous stressful conditions, not times where, hey, today you're in battle, tomorrow you're resting, the next day you might be you know, at a post somewhere, which we saw oftentimes in World War II where there was that fits and starts. Today it's continual activity, lack of sleep, more adjustments toward uh, you know, the kind of population you see, a, a fight among the people. Uh, on those kinds of stressors, the body's gonna wear down and there's gonna be a need for resilience. You can build that resilience in different ways during a peacetime approach, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally as well. So I think, yeah, we, we've got to find new ways to not only just uh, ensure our physical fitness, but also our emotional and uh, intellectual fitness. As uh, in your, in your uh, capacity as commander of initial military training, um, you kind of embodied what the army institutionally can do when you ha when you ha when you have that that position and that responsibility. Mm -hmm. What about in military units? What about for junior leaders? What is what is their role in all of this? Yeah, it was interesting because uh, I was talking to a couple of cadets after the briefing today, and they asked that very same question. Uh, and what was fascinating is a lot of people think that basic training can be so constrained uh, and disciplined that you can do anything you want with your soldiers in a set period of time and the schedule is unremarkable and it's a whole lot more complex in an operational environment. And you know, you will get a lot of people saying, "Oh, you know, we do PT our own way in the operational environment." One of the things we did, <laughs> one of the things we did during the study uh, about when we were about to change uh, PT to the PRT program uh, in 2011 was I was getting reaction from most of the operational commanders and sergeant majors that they did PT or physical training much better in their programs in the operational army than we did in basic training. We were too lockstep. So I actually sent a couple of film crews out to uh, sur uh, surreptitiously film PT sessions at Fort Bragg, Fort Hood, and Fort Carson, Colorado. And what I saw and what the film can, and this was a direct reaction to what I used to do at the National Training Center as the commander of the ops group, you would film people in order to allow them to look in the mirror to see what they were really doing. And we just sent these film crews out to take pictures of people, of units doing PT. And what we found was uh, in most unit cases, they would have an hour and a half or an hour schedule for a PT program but as we did the calculation, less than a third of that time was actually spent doing PT. So there was a lot of, pardon the term, grab ass, a lot of goofing around, a lot of stretching, a lot of preparing to do PT, but never doing it. 
And that would be the same as if you were saying, hey, I'm going to do a, a tank uh, uh, gunnery run and it's going to last 15 minutes, but I'm only going to spend a minute and a half doing actual targeting of targets. Uh, you know, there's a wasting of time. And that is a junior leader and a senior leader responsibility to ensure that soldiers get trained. Uh, what we also saw in most of those operational units is there would be somebody in charge of the PT formation and the leaders would go away to do officer PT or leader PT. And whenever you're not doing that combined physical training with your unit, with your soldiers, you lose the effect of actually holding to standard. I'm not suggesting that it's you have to do everything at the slowest rate, but a unit that does those kinds of things together becomes uh, generates more camaraderie, more trust, uh, more ability to understand what you're training for. So that's a long way to get around your question of junior leaders in operational units can ensure the, the adherence to standards and the accountability in training for combat in all areas, but they have to be there and they have to understand what the training is all about. Um, it was interesting, when I left IMT, I got a call from, I won't say who it was, in, in USRA, uh, who had read about what we were trying to do in terms of the revamping of basic training, not only in the skills and values category, but also in the, in the physical category. And they, you know, they kiddingly said, hey, sir, are you bringing some of this craziness to USRA with you. You know, the, the revised mess halls and the dining facilities and the changes in the PT. And I said, well, yeah. And they, they actually said, are you gonna be the, the fitness Nazi over here too? I said, yeah, I am. So we actually were able to revamp most of our dining facilities in the, in the basic training model. Eliminate the deep fat fryers, getting away from the carbonated drinks, the desserts, the high. Well, in an operational model, you're competing in Europe, not only with the guest houses and the Burger Kings, but with mom's home cooking when most of the soldiers go home. So it has to be not just a culture change on the part of the soldier, but it has to be a culture change on the part of the Army family. Now, luckily in Europe, I had a young woman who was, who was actually doing a, a studies for a master's degree in, in uh, nutrition. And she incorporated a program in our schools that mirrored the Fueling the Soldier initiative, and she called it Fueling the Future for young kids in some of the DOD schools. Highly successful. She took it with her to Fort Campbell, uh, I'm sorry, Fort Carson, Colorado, got it, the same program started there. So there is the capability to introduce these kinds of things that will fix units and drive change. Uh, even to the point of some of the things we did in basic training generated a program in Department of Defense called the Healthy Base Initiative. Now, I haven't kept track of what they've done there because it, it kind of generated some early interest and then sort of fizzled out. But the Healthy Base Initiative was an attempt at taking innovations from all the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, and saying, how do we make DOD a healthier workplace, Department of Defense a healthier workplace, so we can contribute to uh, efficiencies in our health care and looking at health across the spectrum, not just in, in treatment, but in prevention of disease. General Hurtling, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to the MWI podcast. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. You can also check out the MWI website at mwi.usma.edu to see new articles we publish every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at War Institute.